So today we come to the end of our march through Luke 24 by getting to these last verses in Luke 24, the series that we've been calling Surprised by Resurrection. And today we move to this event that was commemorated uh, around the globe in the church on Thursday, ten days before Pentecost, which takes place next Sunday. And, uh, and this is the event that we refer to as the Ascension. Uh, and for most of us, the Ascension, I think, is a bit of a mystery in some ways. Perhaps not so much in what it is, but more perhaps in what it means. We affirm week after week as the church. These words we say, and we'll say again after the sermon, after the prayers, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So we say this week after week after week, year after year, but I think we sometimes aren't really sure what this means and what it guarantees for us and why it's actually important. After all, we have the cross and we have the resurrection. Isn't that enough? Aren't those the main things? And of course, I wouldn't want to say that that's a wrong statement, but I would want to say that those two events, the cross and the resurrection, are supplemented by and completed in some ways by the earthly, the final act of Jesus' earthly ministry, which is his ascension. His ascension. The tradition of the church and the story of Luke, which ends here in Luke's Gospel and then begins in the book of Acts, both with accounts of the ascension, um, would tell us that there is this other reality that we need to give attention to in our lives. And I think as we'll see, the, these realities that the ascension affirms and the tensions that the ascension upholds for the church are incredibly significant for us as Christ's followers in the world today to walk rightly um, as his body, as his church. And so they're important for us as well. First, we'll get the basics down. Look at, okay, so what is the ascension? Verses 50 and 51 of Luke 24. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. I love that that's the last thing that Jesus does, is he blesses his disciples. And while he blessed them, verse 51, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. So the first thing about the ascension is that Jesus departs. Jesus departs. The text says, he parted from them. And I don't want us to overlook the significance of that reality, that Jesus actually departs. The ascension gives us and the early church an answer to the question of why we don't see Jesus continuing to walk around in that really amazing new creation body of his on the earth. It gives us an answer to that question because he has departed from the earth. He's departed, which means that the fully human, resurrected, risen Jesus, this human being who is more substantial than we are, more substantive than we are, is now somewhere else other than physically present here on earth. He's somewhere else. His new creation body has gone somewhere else. And Jesus is one with that body. He's fully human. And so Jesus has gone somewhere else. Absent from the church. Absent from the world. In some way absent. Now wait, wait, wait. You're saying, wait a second. Lo, didn't he say lo? To quote the King James. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And of course, yes, he does say that. And yes, there are lots of indications in the New Testament witness that Jesus is still present with his people. Ephesians 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We could go a number of places. So I don't want to be heard saying that Jesus is no longer present. So we affirm the presence of Jesus by his Spirit with his church. But we also, because of the ascension, 
must, as the church, affirm the absence of Jesus as well. And I'll address in just a second why this is so, I think this is so important. So the first thing just to state in terms of the facts is that Jesus left, Jesus departed. And this says something about his ongoing absence from the earth. So he left, but where did he go? Back to verse 51. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Carried up into heaven. So the text plainly tells us that he was carried up into heaven. But where is heaven? And our typical answer to this question is a little bit convoluted. Heaven is somewhere way out there in space. You know, it's beyond a few of the galaxies that are out there somewhere else. And maybe back, you know, all the way to the background radiation of the universe. Like, the heaven is somewhere way, 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 way far away. It's on the same continuum of space and time and matter that we are, but it's way out there somewhere else. That tends to be the way that we think. We have this kind of three-decker mentality of, of the world and reality. So we're here, heaven is way up there, and hell is way down there. Something to that effect. And we get these three stages. And so we, we think sometimes of the ascension as making Jesus some kind of pre-modern space traveler. You know, that he lifts up and like the guy with rockets at the Super Bowl sometimes just kind of shoots up into the sky and goes somewhere else like the shuttle Discovery has done so many times. But this is where flat literalism in reading the story of the ascension actually gets us into trouble. Indeed, most theologians who wrestle with the reality of the ascension point to the Bible's different conception of God's reality. Sorry, you're getting a lesson in cosmology. You probably didn't expect that, but here we go. So instead of heaven and earth as two different locations within the same continuum of space and time that we know today, the biblical picture is is that heaven and earth are two different dimensions of God's good creation that are overlapping and interlocking, that are not, in, they're not distant from one another spatially, as in God is so remote, but they are separated in, as, as two different dimensions of created reality, the, the, the reality that God has made. And they relate together in two ways. First, heaven is tangentially connected to earth, meaning that someone who is in heaven can be, can be present in some meaningful way to someone who's on earth anywhere and everywhere that person on earth is. So there's a relationship in some ways that surpasses the way we normally think about what makes somebody present. So that Jesus who's in heaven is available and accessible without having to travel to a particular spot in our cosmos to find him. So that's the first way. There's a tangential connection. And the second thing is that that heaven is kind of like a control room for earth. So that heaven is the place where the instructions for the way in which the life on earth begins to shape and take place, are given. Heaven is the control room for earth. So it's tangentially connected. Maybe the best analogy for this is is C.S. Lewis grappling with this in the Narnia Chronicles, where you have this one world and this other world, and they're kind of interacting and they're relating. But it's not like anything that we can conceive of. There are these two, heaven and earth, these two overlapping spheres that one day will actually be completely united and locked together. And the veil that separates heaven and earth, which again is not a spatial veil, but is a veil of dimensions, will be lifted entirely. And God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So that's the what. Jesus departed, and he departed to heaven, being the dimension where God is in our present day creation. So enough for lessons on cosmology. Now let's get to what this actually means for us as the church 
today. What does this mean for us that Jesus has departed? And, and to say something else about the ascension, Jesus has departed and he's departed by ascending to the Father's right hand. And as an ascended, risen, exalted Savior, he's doing two primary things at the Father's right hand. First of all, he's ruling and he's reigning over his creation. Sovereignly ruling and reigning. And we could glory in that and rejoice in that for the rest of this night. And I hope in some ways that we do. So he's ruling and reigning. And secondly, he's interceding as the great high priest before the throne of the Father on behalf of his children. He's interceding for his world. And this is the ongoing human ministry of the exalted Jesus in the heavenlies. This is what he's actually doing. But what does it mean that he's no longer here? What, could, what, what kind of um, lessons can we draw from the absence of Jesus from his church, from his heavenly ministry that's going on right now? Again, an absence that doesn't make him distant, but that still has to be affirmed in some ways that he is absent. So here we go. The importance of his absence. If we downplay the ascension, if we get kind of muddled on the ascension, muddled on the identity of Jesus today as a human reigning in the heavenly realms at the Father's right hand, and just kind of being present with his people in this spiritual way, we lose the concreteness that the ascension affirms about the person of Jesus then we are prone to lose the Jesus who stands over and above his church as Lord. As someone distinct from the church itself. Who reigns and rules over that church. Who critiques and who leads and who guides that church as someone separate from and absent from that church. We are prone to conflate the church and Jesus. We're, We're prone to make the church and Jesus one. And so if we lose the ascension and the concrete focus upon Jesus, then we, the church, begin to grasp for concreteness somewhere else. And the easiest place to look is in our own institutions, our own canons, our own traditions, our own rituals, and to find Jesus there. And that is, I'm saying that the church will fill the vacuum They'll fill the vac- we will fill the vacuum that is created by a denial or a muddiness on the reality that the ascension affirms, the particularity and the concreteness of the risen Jesus. And this leads to a couple of things, kind of polar opposites from one another. On the one hand, this leads to triumphalism. This leads to a kind of self-serving, self-justifying church that becomes its ultimate end for itself without Jesus being clearly distinct from the church and critiquing the church, the church can conflate itself with Jesus and then enlist Jesus into her own service. So we start to set the agenda. We start to say that we can bring the kingdom to come now. We begin to move and to act with a great kind of confidence and overconfidence about what we can actually do. And this doesn't just happen for the institution of the church, which has certainly played out over history. But it happens for us as individuals in our own lives too. When the focus on Jesus outside of us becomes kind of fuzzy, then we begin to substitute ourselves in his place. Sure, we still claim Jesus, we still have Jesus, but we start asserting our own agenda and our own goals as a standard. And Jesus is with us, and we're on the way to glory, and here we go. This kind of conflation, this triumphalism. You know, something like this is actually happening in the church very early on in Corinth 
So Paul writes with this kind of scathing sarcasm in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might rule with you. You've already begun to reign. You've already thought that you've got it, that you're running the race from glory to glory. This temptation is to be triumphalistic and to substitute something tangible, usually ourselves, or maybe the church, to substitute something tangible, something very concrete here, for something that is absent. Still concrete, still real, still particular, but absent, and that is God himself in the person of Jesus. This happens in a similar vein in Exodus 32, when their mediator ascends up to the mountain and is, is taken away in the clouds and the fog of God's terrifying presence. And the people can't handle it anymore. And so what do they do? They take their treasures and they throw them into a pot and out comes the golden calf, so says Aaron. This is constantly the, 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 the temptation in light of the absence of the mediator, is to jump in and to make something else Lord in his place. And the ascension and the absence of Jesus stands over and against that and says, no, that's the wrong way to run. And when we sit loose on the ascension, we open ourselves to this kind of triumphalism. Let me just ask it to you in a personal way. Where are you prone to triumphalism in your own heart and in your own life? Where is it that you need the particularity of Jesus as distinct from and other than you, as presently reigning in the heavenly realms to rebuke you and to call you back to the right and proper place in our lives? You see, the flip side now of triumphalism is despair because triumphalism never works. It never works for us to begin to put ourselves in the place of God himself and to try to do an agenda or make a life happen or do something else that we think must happen to, to kind of accomplish the, cert, the results that we think need to be accomplished. We can never take God's place, hard as we may try. So triumphalism run amok, which it always will, leads to despair. Leads to despair. So maybe that's the flip side of this for some of us tonight. Where are you in despair right now? Because you weren't able to get the results from life that you wanted to get? Because things didn't work out quite like you wanted them to in your job or in your education or in your family or so on. And, and, and it leads to a kind of despair. That's the, the, the back side, the other side of the coin of triumphalism. Both of which are denying the reality of the absent Lord over us and speaking against us as the Lord who reigns. So where are we in triumphalism or despair. When the ascension affirms that Jesus is not identified with the church or with us, uh, this is what it affirms. So that though he is indeed present by his spirit, he stands over and above the church and is able to critique it and to rebuke it. When it does this, it puts us back into our proper place. And here's how Tom Wright says this, many of you know his work, a New Testament scholar in England, only when we grasp firmly that the church is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the church. When we grasp, in other words, the truth of the ascension, that the one who is indeed present with us by his Spirit is also the Lord who is strangely absent, strangely other, strangely different from us and over against us, the one who tells Mary Magdalene not to cling to him. Only then are we rescued from both hollow triumphalism and shallow despair. 
when we see Jesus as distinct. And the ascension concretely affirms that for us as the church today. So let me say something else about the fact of the ascension that that moves us and that that directs us. Um, And this is that the ascension is incredibly good and freeing news for the church. It's great news for us that the one who died on the cross in love for his creation has been raised to the right hand of the Father and is presently ruling and reigning over all of creation, even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes, even though our experience sometimes tries to push us in every way to say that that's not true. But this is incredibly good news. And when we come to acknowledge that Jesus is reigning, it actually begins to free us from needing to reign ourselves. And so it takes us out of that place of triumphalism It takes us out of the the flip side of that of despair and it begins to put us into the proper place of witnesses as we looked at last week together who can do our, play our proper part in pointing through us to the ascended Jesus who rules and who reigns over all the earth. So when we affirm this rule and reign we have confidence and freedom to be creatures again and not self-made creators. Which finally and freely enables us to embrace the proper role of creatures, which is image bearers, which is bearing witness to Jesus. So confident of His ongoing rule, we can finally and freely give up our self-justification, our pursuits of my kingdom come, and take our place in humble service of the High King who is over and against us, Yes, present, but also absent. Whether we feel it, whether we feel it, this is important, or not. So the proper acknowledgement of Jesus' rule right now over all of creation means that Jesus, the fact of Jesus, is more than our experience of His presence. It's more even than our sense of His presence. That Jesus is real and substantial and reigning and this is something to celebrate And this becomes then something to bear witness to with all of our lives. So this reality of Jesus exalted and reigning begins to empower us. Empower us to go out and to bear faithful witness as the church. No longer kings ourselves, but bearing witness to the true king. And we do this, look at verses 52 and 53, if you've got your Bibles. They worshipped him, it says, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus ascended, parted, departed, and they're worshiping, and there's great joy, and there's this overflow of blessing of God. That is the posture of those who acknowledge the risen, ruling, reigning, resurrected Jesus, ascended Jesus. Worship, joy, overflowing with blessing at his name. So I bring us to a close. Let me just say, where does this witness lead us to? This witness to the ascended Jesus lead us to? It leads us into the footsteps of Jesus himself. And note just how opposite this is from triumphalism. From glory to glory. It leads us into the footsteps of Jesus. And where did Jesus go? To the cross. And where did Jesus call his followers to go? To the cross. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross 
and follow me. This is the way that Jesus traveled to establish his kingdom. And this is the way that Jesus leads us now by his Holy Spirit as the ascended one, his work continuing, his kingdom witness and building continuing now through his church. He leads us in this same path to the cross so that Paul can say right after he's ridiculed the Corinthians for going from glory to glory, he says, as a servant of the ascended Christ, he says, for I think that God has exhibited us as apostles last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And in a subsequent letter to the church in Corinth, he writes, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested also in our bodies. This is the consequence of our union with the risen and ascended Jesus, is as witnesses to go to the cross. This is why the church, in its, bear, in its witness to the presence, the ruling, and the reigning of Christ, always moves to martyrdom, which is the word for witness, as we saw last week. And a triumphalistic church is a church that bears witness without martyrdom. It's a church that bears witness from glory to glory. It's a church that bears witness without distinction from the world in which we inhabit, in which we live, because the world's ends and projects, sometimes manifested in the church, sometimes manifested in our own hearts and our own ambitions, become our own. The world's things become our own. And we no longer bear witness prophetically against that world by by bearing the cross. By bearing the cross. So to conclude, it's this reality of Jesus ascended and, and, and reigning that leads us to affirm his absence from the world and even in some ways from us in the church. Thoroughly present in the spirit that comes next week in Pentecost but in some way absent And this is great news, and here's why, as as I close. As we bear witness to Jesus in the power and the presence of his Spirit working in us, we also groan and we suffer and we die because we take up the cross. So especially in the season of Advent, but always in the church, this is the flip side of the ascension now, we long for the departed one to return. Do you see how the logic of the ascension saying Jesus has gone somewhere else also computes with the logic of the cry of the church. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Because he's not yet here in full. Thanks be to God because if he was it wouldn't be great news. Because we're bearing the cross. But in bearing the cross as faithful witnesses not as those in despair not as those in triumph but as those who are witnessing The reality of the ascension leads us to the cry of the church, come Lord Jesus. And you'll see in the creed, and you'll see in the Eucharist as we celebrate that tonight, that always when we say that Christ has ascended, we say next that He is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That the one who's departed in reality is actually coming back. And so as a church, we have to bear witness to the absence of Jesus just as much as we bear witness to his ruling and to his reigning, so that the world knows that he's coming back to judge and to rule and to reign finally and fully. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again.
That's great news. That's great news. That the ascension, the particularity, the concreteness of Jesus' human, resurrected person reigning at the Father's right hand leads us to proclaim, Maranatha, come Lord, come Lord, come and rescue us once again. So if you're bearing witness to the ascended Christ by the power of His Spirit and you're groaning and you're taking up the cross and we all should be in one way or another, take heart that He who departed is coming back. And take that cry on this day of ascension to Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and do what you alone can do. We can bear faithful witness by bearing the cross with you, but only you can renew and restore and make all things new. Not us. Thanks be to God, not us. Amen.